1: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, for the seven days starting January 7th, 2009. I'm Steve Mirsky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk about the January issue of Scientific American magazine, which is devoted to evolution and the evolution of evolutionary theory, because today's evolution is not your grandfather's or even your monkey's uncle. Editor-in-Chief John Rennie and I spoke at the magazine's offices. What's the big deal with evolution? Ron? Evolution, Steve. Evolution. It's
0: only the most powerful idea in science, and 2009 is a very big year.
1: I figured that probably had something to do with it. Why don't you tell everybody what the what the bigness is about 2009?
0: Well, sure. It's uh, it's actually it's kind of a double header of anniversaries related to evolution. It, it first of all, it marks the 200th uh anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin so happy birthday chuck uh on uh, in february and then it also marks the 150th anniversary conveniently of the publication of on the origin of species in which uh Darwin
1: laid out his uh, his theory of evolution which means uh for those of you uh doing the math at home Darwin was 50 when Origin of Species came out. That's right. And he had uh, spent about 30 or about 20 years basically sitting at home thinking about things and, and writing the book. And, uh, well, you, we, we get into that in our Our opening article in the, in the issue, for those of you not familiar with the Darwin story, you know, he, uh, he was very leery about publishing and, and finally the, uh, the pressure was on to publish because of Alfred Russell Wallace's Discovery of basically the same principle of natural selection driving evolution. Exactly,
0: independently, uh, Wallace had come up with with exactly the same sorts of insights, and uh, and actually had had come to Darwin and and shown him some portions of his manuscript, and and was looking for feedback on that, and. Uh, and uh, Darwin uh, realized that uh, the the ideas that he'd been ruminating over for twenty years since he had returned uh, from the Beagle uh, that uh, he was in danger of uh, losing any claim to those, and so he, in 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 rather a rush. Wrote on the Origin of Species, which is actually kind of astonishing because, and I think this is something you've commented on, on the Origin of Species is actually a beautifully written book. Um, it's it's something of a masterpiece of uh, of exposition and laying out the entire argument. Of course, he had been thinking about it for twenty years, so probably was all just right upstairs there in his head. Uh, but uh, but still, it's it's really astonishing when you realize that that's how it uh, that's how it came
1: out. And we really have uh, Alfred Russell Wallace to thank. For both compelling Darwin to publish as soon as he wound up publishing, and for keeping, for indirectly keeping *Origin of Species* as short as it is, <laughs> because Darwin considered it to be an abstract of his <laughs> larger thinking, yeah. and you know it's it's not a particularly short book. But uh, but anyway, there's uh, the the lead article is more about the history, and then we get into some of the actual science, and we have the core ideas of. Evolutionary modern evolutionary theory, being laid out in the in the subsequent articles. There's uh, your your old buddy David Kingsley, who's uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator at Stanford, has uh, an article in the in the issue about the sources of variation, which is really an interesting idea. Where the variation comes from that natural selection works on. That's right. The uh you know, I think a lot of people have a sort of naive view
0: that all all of the the sources of variation associated with uh evolution somehow come down to just different random point mutations it's you know the idea that it's all different little bits of radiation from space pinging off of our dna randomly changing changing one uh, nucleotide into another one um but that's not the case in fact what although, although those kinds of point mutations are a very significant source of uh, variation that natural selection acts on uh in fact uh, what uh, what uh, dave kingsley lays out is that there are in fact as biologists have discovered many different sources Sources of, uh, of, of variation that can come up. So we do have uh, kinds of, of point uh, mutations, but also it's possible to see entire whole uh, pieces of DNA inserted uh, into another creature's DNA. And so that can be a source of, of very important uh, uh, variation. Uh, genes can be uh, duplicated, and then those duplications uh, can vary themselves and uh so in, and then the the various elements that regulate uh the uh, the activity of some of the the protein making portions of the the DNA can themselves be under a considerable amount of change so in fact there are many many different types of variation that can show up inside our DNA and uh, all of those can be involved in natural selection And all of those can, in many cases, it's because we have such a range of different types of variation that we can see the ways in which the kind of of complex features will start to show up in organisms and how they can evolve uh, sometimes
1: remarkably efficiently. There's a a great picture in the Kingsley article of uh, a little whippet dog next to a dog that basically looks like you'd really be hard-pressed to spend eight seconds on it in a rodeo. <laughs> and uh there's a single point mutation difference between... Those two animals, right? There's a perfect example of how the the tiniest
0: conceivable genetic difference between uh, one organism and another one can result in a in a huge change in the in the body. What we call a phenotypic change, where these uh, certain kinds of, of whippets that have uh, this this particular mutation are hugely over muscled. They have a, a gigantic amount of muscle mass, um, and as you said, so it looks <laughs> like some kind of bull rather than a rather
1: than a little dog. And uh, by the way, the reason I said uh, John's old friend, Dave Kingsley, because they, they went to college together about, what, 60, 70 years ago. That's right. That's right. right. At the time, DNA was very new. <laughs> right. And you have uh, H. Allen Orr, who writes extensively on evolution, talking about the, the continual um, recognition of the importance of natural selection. Right. Natural selection has gone in and out of favor as the driving force in evolution since Darwin first proposed it and now that we have the molecular tools to really test things at the at the single part of a gene level it turns out natural selection really is that important right you know in a sense w- w- the important
0: uh message that you could take away from uh H Eleanor's article about testing natural selection is that the world could work very very differently um you know it's it, as he points out you could conceivably have the biological world could could have evolved a long ways that didn't involve natural selection in the ways that we talk about them. It might have played a much more minor role. But in fact, uh, as as biologists have gone and, and studied the problem, we find in fact lots of evidence that uh, this kind of, of natural selection on mechanisms that are related to ones that Darwin sort of sketched out in a very broad way, uh, that these, in fact, play a, a huge role in evolution, uh, much more of a role than was believed for a long time, because, uh, for example, uh, for a long time there was an idea that many sorts of uh, the changes that would show up in populations would be the result of neutral mutations, that, in effect, one of those little events changing one nucleotide for another one, it was essentially one was as good as the next one, and there wasn't any particular difference that natural selection would act on to favor one over the other. So it was thought that a lot of the differences between populations would be the result of really just sort of random chance, what would, uh, is referred to as genetic drift. But in fact, when you go in and look at this, you find that natural selection has an extraordinary ability to act on fantastically small levels of di- difference in fitness. Uh, and uh, and as a result, that, that really does have a huge influence on, on shaping various populations.
1: For example our uh, ability some of us to digest milk the lactose in milk as adults it's a very recent adaptation in uh, evolutionary history well right because and un- really until we
0: started to develop agriculture until we started to herd animals and and collected milk as a good source of of protein um you know no mammals don't continue to breastfeed throughout their lives uh, so the young have the ability to uh, to digest breast milk and then after they stop drinking it they stop making that uh, lactase em- uh, enzyme that allows them to break down the lactose sugar in the milk uh but we kept drinking milk we Raised cows and milk was a ready source of, of protein and other nutrients. And we would keep on drinking that throughout our lives. And so evolution started to act on the human population and in uh, populations that traditionally drank a lot of milk, we have this ability to keep making, uh, the, uh, the, the lactose throughout our lives, the lactase throughout our lives. And
1: l- let's just explain a little bit mechanistically. I mean, it's, it's likely that uh, the mutation that enabled adults to digest lactose cropped up now and again, you know, throughout the history of human evolution. Right. But there was never any selection pressure to keep it around until we had agriculture and were starting to try to use milk as a, a nutritional source, as a food, as adults. Right. At that point in human history, all of a sudden those individuals who happen to have this genetic mutation have a big advantage over their comrades who can't digest the lactose. And so the, uh, the combination of the environment and that genetic influence makes that genetic construct get selected for and uh, preserved in the population. And all of a sudden, you know, within a couple of thousand years, the majority of Europeans. Mm-hmm. Can digest lactose. Right. Uh,
0: you know, this, th- that's a good point because it, it, it's always important to remember, you know, if people always have these sorts of arguments about nature versus nurture and what, uh, are there genes for various traits? You know, people, discussions about uh, genes for intelligence and so forth are always notorious about this sort of thing. But the reality is you can't, you can't really discuss a gene, the idea of the meaning of a gene outside of the environment in which it's going to be expressed. You can't really talk about the meaning that it has and what it will do, whether it has any sort of positive or negative value in that way. I mean, ultimately, you know, we talk about genes as though they are, they're building blocks for some sort of complicated traits, even a trait like, say, being able to drink milk. Uh, But of course, the reality is the, the, the molecular biological reality is that the gene is just a stretch of DNA that happens to make a protein that breaks down a sugar that is in milk. So only under a number of different circumstances in which people happen to have exposure to, they happen to have or easy easy access to a lot of milk that happens to contain a lot of lactose, that they can't digest very easily unless they happen to still make a lot of the lactase enzyme that they all made as children. All of these circumstances come together to make something like that beneficial. Anything that breaks down that set of, of circumstances... It's just another little stretch of DNA that may not prove it's worth and as you said it, it vanishes
1: back in as, as random noise again right without the pressure to keep it it disappears yeah there's a, a fascinating thing that your most recent comments made me think about and that is that you know uh, probably everybody everybody listening took a, a, an introductory biology class at some point and you saw Mendel's uh, pea plant, Genetics with the smooth and the round peas and the uh, the tall or the short stalks. And in the issue, it discusses briefly at one point how the the understanding at the genetic level is now complete enough where we know exactly what those mutations were, what changes in the DNA code occurred, that Mendel was studying. He didn't, of course, know he was studying it. He was studying the phenotypes. He Mm -hmm. was studying the the macro information that was available to him with his hands and his eyes. That was the best he could do, and he he did an amazing job with that. But it's just fascinating that we now know exactly, to the letter of DNA code, what was going on in the plants that he was working with that made the The smooth pea wrinkled instead Mm -hmm. of smooth. And it is just an amazing thing that that information now exists all as a, as a whole. Right. And it's also in a way, it's, it's, it's easy
0: to lose track of the fact that when, when Darwin was first theorizing and, and when Mendel was working on the, the underpinnings of heredity were a complete mystery. Nobody knew how it was that traits got passed on from from a parent to a child. It there were lots of different theories about it, but nobody knew what the mechanism of it was. Which is why in fact Darwin actually he subscribed to or at least open to the possibility of uh, the idea that that what he was calling sort of little gemmules um as some sort of element that might have uh, transmitted uh Hereditary information from parents onto offspring that you might have actually had some kind of Lamarckian mechanism that the experience of the of the the parent organism might have changed what its hereditary contribution would be. We now know that wasn't true or at least not simplistically true um but uh but but you know they were very open to this that this is the amazing thing of the whole idea of all of these ideas about how it is that you could have extraordinary th- things evolve in the biological realm um, through this mechanism of, of natural selection acting on variations in the population. All was done without any idea of DNA, without any idea of the sophisticated idea of how inheritance worked at all. It really is
1: amazing. And, and well,
0: you know, it's in a way, it, it also speaks to Right. I talked about evol- the idea of, of evolution as being the, the most powerful idea in science before. And it's because that that insight of that, that systems will evolve if any time in which you have some sort of mechanism of selection that is acting on some sort of underlying set of variation. So you don't have to have, it doesn't have to be a biological system. Um, the ideas of evolution have turned out to be very useful to chemists. They've turned out to be useful to physicists and astrophysicists. Uh, it's, it's the idea that, oh, if you have something that's tending to screen out and select for certain kinds, uh, that, that you will then have the, a, a very orderly, progressive, form of evolution, without it being directed by anything, as an extraordinary insight.
1: Some of the other articles in the issue include a look at human anatomy by Neil Shubin, author of the recent bestseller, Your Inner Fish, a journey into the three and a half billion year history of the human body. David Mendel's take on evolution in the everyday world, which looks at how healthcare, law enforcement, and other disciplines use evolutionary theory, David Buller's piece on the fallacies of pop evolutionary psychology, and the latest face of creationism about the ongoing threat posed to science education by anti-evolution political forces. That analysis is from Glenn Branch and Eugenie Scott of the National Center for Science Education. The entire issue is available, much of it free, at www.siam.com Jan2009. I was reading an evolution essay last week by Julian Huxley, originally written in 1942 and updated in 1963, called Evolution, the Modern Synthesis. I just want to share a short passage. After a discussion of the structural characteristics of DNA, Huxley writes, The various properties of DNA which I have mentioned make evolution inevitable. The existence of an elaborate self-reproducing code of genetical information ensures continuity and specificity. The intrinsic capacity for mutation provides variability. The capacity for self-reproduction ensures potentially geometric increase and therefore a struggle for existence. The existence of genetic variability ensures differential survival of variants and therefore natural selection. And this results in evolutionary transformation. That's it in a nutshell, kids.
0: The boys are back in the field. They're lined up. Huxley is about to kick off to Darwin. And there they go! Is there a doctor on the stands? Why, yes, I'm a doctor. How do you like the game, Doc?
1: Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, something Darwin missed during his trip to the Galapagos, a newly identified pink iguana species. Story two, public health researchers are now concerned over what they've dubbed third-hand smoke story three the milky way galaxy is spinning more slowly and is somewhat smaller than was previously thought and story four president bush this week became a leading protector of the world's ocean environment Time's up. Story one is true. The pink iguana species originated in the Galapagos more than five million years ago and diverged from the island's other iguana populations when the archipelago was still forming. That's according to genetic analysis published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Story two is true. So-called third-hand smoke is a hazard, according to public health researchers. Third-hand smoke is all the nasty stuff in cigarette smoke that winds up embedded in in carpets, drapes, clothing, hair, and anything else that will absorb it. Infants and children are particularly at risk of exposure to the carcinogens, according to a report in the journal Pediatrics. And story four is true. This week, President Bush protected some 335,000 square miles of U.S. territorial waters. Added to waters off of Hawaii that were protected in 2006, it makes Bush responsible for the largest areas of ocean protections ever so designated. For more, check out David Biello's blog item posted on our website on January 6th. All of which means that story three about the Milky Way galaxy being slower and smaller is totally bogus. Because what is true is that we're actually bigger and faster. Astronomers announced this week that in our position in the Milky Way, we're moving at 600,000 miles per hour, give or take a couple, 100,000 miles faster than previous estimates. And the galaxy, therefore, must be half again as massive as we thought to allow that speed without us hurtling out of orbit. That's according to research presented at the meeting of the American Astronomical Society this week. For more, check out the January 5th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60-Second Science. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out Siam.com for the latest science news, our very timely, in-depth report on the science of weight loss, and our feature on 10 Lessons Medicine Can Learn from Bears, which includes lots of pictures of baby bears that will make you say, boo choo boo look at the little boo-boo. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Yeah.